Good morning. Uh, I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and that's really awkward way for me to start with you guys. Um, I didn't know Dan was going to do that till about ten minutes before the service. Um, we are. I, I think I speak for Dave when I say that we are thankful uh, for the ministry that God has given us here at Cross Point, and uh, just completely humbled by the calling that He's placed in our lives. And we love you guys dearly, and it's not, um, it's not, I'll just let the train go by for a second. Um, It's it's truly not about us. It's it's about uh, more and more people coming to know the love and truth of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will give our very lives for that. uh, If if need be, that is what we are about here. And so, um, I want to uh, I want to just draw your attention away from Pastor Appreciation Month for a second by deflecting to another man who um, Crosspoint knows and loves dearly. His name is my dad, and um, he is uh, if if he's not here yet, he will be pulling in soon. I want you to pay attention to what I have to say to you this morning, okay? But he's going to be pulling in soon with a big trailer that he calls the Meat Monster, and uh, and if you don't haven't noticed yet, uh, a lot of people are wearing. Um, most people are wearing the right team jersey, but, um, but a lot of people are wearing their favorite team colors, and, and um, my family determined that orange and blue are, are actually compatible on the color wheel, but green and yellow aren't, so um, just throwing it out there. Um, so, but we're having a tailgate after the, after the service this morning, and uh, let me just tell you something about my dad, okay? Um, he... He is one of, was one of two guys in charge of the entire food. Uh, oh, there he is right now. Um, he was one of two guys in charge of all the food served at uh, the Morton Pumpkin Festival in the food tent this year. And, uh, and let me just, let me put this into perspective for you. Saturday morning alone at breakfast, they served over 14,000 sausage links. Okay? In the last nine months, he has literally cooked thousands and thousands of pounds of meat the man knows his way around the grill, okay? Uh, and prefer, uh, he actually smokes most of the stuff. So I'm just going to say, they gave him a t-shirt at, at um, the Pumpkin Festival that on the back it said, this ain't my first rodeo, all right? He knows his stuff. And so um, all that to say, he's ending his cooking season with us today. And so you know that, that he spent a lot of, of time and care. And he said, he told me this week that this is his favorite event to do every, uh, every chance he gets. And so I know that this is probably going to be the best pork uh, that I've ever tasted. And I've had a lot of it. All right. Uh, if you haven't had it yet, it will ruin pulled pork sandwiches for you for the rest of your life. I'm just telling you right now. Okay. So whether you are a visitor, this, if you, this is the first time you walked in the doors this morning, um, and, uh, or if you, you know, if you're, if you come, if you come to Crosspoint and, uh, you forgot to bring a side dish or a dessert or whatever, that doesn't matter, okay? There's going to be plenty of meat, and that's really the most important thing, right? So, um, if you, uh, if you, we want to extend that invitation to you to stay with us afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure yet whether or not the call was made, if we're going to eat outside or not, but, uh, we'll get the fire pit going and all that stuff, but we'll have a good time together, and, uh, and, and I want to just encourage you to just go up and, and uh, meet my dad, okay? And tell him that you love him and that you're thankful for him because uh, he's put a solid 24 hours into this already. So, um, 
All right. Now that I got you thinking about pulled pork, uh, grab your Bibles, because that's what I do when I think about pulled pork. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 John, and, and uh, you know, if your tummy's growling and stuff, just keep it quiet for me. Um, 1 John's in the very back of your Bible. It's uh, five books from the end. Today we're starting a new series called The Walk, and, uh, and for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be walking through the, this book of 1 John. Um, together and taking a look at what the life of a follower of Christ should look like. The series title comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The five chapters in this book are going to give us some markers of a true believer, something that we can measure ourselves against in order to see whether or not we're truly walking as Jesus did. I read a, a report recently of, of an ABC News poll that said uh, that, 83% of Americans claim to be Christians. 83% of Americans claim to be Christians. But, but let's just think for a second, okay? Even a small glimpse into uh, our culture and the values that it has, it's going to reveal a, a set of values that's much different uh, than the, the values that we find in the Bible, right? And so this means that there are many people who are claiming to follow Christ, who are claiming to, to live in Him, but aren't walking as Jesus walked. Instead, they're walking as the world walks. And, and, and you might be sitting in here this morning, you may be one of those people, and, and maybe you honestly believe that you're a Christian, but maybe you're basing that belief on something that you think it means to follow God or something that you've heard a, a friend or a family member say or you've seen on TV or whatever it is. Maybe the, the influence that has you believing that is not uh, directly from the Bible. And if that's you this morning... <clears throat> Um, can I just tell you that you are loved and, and that, that um, if you've never actually seen what the Bible has to say about what it really means to follow Christ, I want to invite you to stay with us these next 11 weeks because you're going to see that. You're going to find out uh, what God says it means to follow him, not what the world says it means to follow him. I'm glad that you're here with us today and, and here's something I know, okay? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Bible, the Word of God, is, uh, it describes it as something that's sharper than a double-edged sword, able to penetrate down to your very soul and judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Uh, and, and as you examine God's Word, God's Word examines you, and it'll reveal whether or not your faith is a cultural faith or a biblical faith. And let me just say that the goal of this series is not to weed out the fakers and identify the cream of the crop who's, who are following Jesus for real. Okay, there's no room for elitism here. And I just want to make that clear. But, but listen, we have to get to realism, right? At some point in our lives, we all have to um, take an honest look at where we stand with God in view of what God says, not in view of what culture says, not in view of what friends and family say, but in view of what God himself says. He's God. He gets to create the, the, uh, the guidelines. And so our prayer is that you, as you examine yourself through the lens of Scripture throughout this series, that you would know the reality of God in your life through faith in Christ, that you would be assured of your salvation in him alone, and uh, that the eternal life that he's given you and that you would be encouraged and that you would take joy in your relationship with God and with fellow believers in the body of Christ. And if along the way, 
God's word reveals a faith in your life that's a cultural faith and not a biblical one, not a true, genuine faith in Christ. And I want you to know that we're not here waiting to say, I told you so. Look at you. We're not going to rub it in your face. But out of our love for you, our prayer is that you'll come to understand that the Holy Spirit that convicts your heart is the same Holy Spirit that can change your heart and make you like Christ and give you a brand new life in Jesus. And our prayer is that you'll surrender yourself fully to the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the ongoing work of the Spirit in your life. After all, 1 John isn't about a checklist of things that we can do to become better Christians. Instead, it helps us see whether or not we're, uh, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is at work in our lives on a continual basis, making us more like Christ. That's the mark of a true believer, a true follower of Christ. And as we go through this series, we're going to take 1 John and we're going to see how it applies to our lives. But in order to really do that with accuracy, we need to understand some context first. 1 John is a letter, okay? But it's not a normal letter uh, due to the fact that it lacks an opening greeting and a closing salutation. Most of Paul's letters, he says who he is, uh, gives a greeting, and at the end he kind of just closes with, hey, you know, some closing remarks, I love you, and things like that. There's no... um, there's, there's no mention within the letter itself uh, to whom this letter is written to uh, specifically or who the author is, uh, but most scholars will agree that there's compelling evidence that it suggests that the Apostle John uh, wrote the letter while he was living in Ephesus and that the letter was circulated to the churches he oversaw throughout uh, Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And I put a couple maps in here for you to look at uh, today, and uh, I just want you to see... You can go to the next one, just to kind of give you an idea. Right there in the middle, okay, this is a Google map still image. That's Ephesus. It's still there. It looks way different than it did in the Bible, but it's still there. That's a real place. Okay, sometimes we hear the names of places in the Bible, and, and we think, man, I, that doesn't sound familiar at all. I have no idea if that's real. It's like it, the only map that you're going to find it on is something out of a J.R.R. Tolkien novel, you know what I'm saying, it's like Middle Earth kind of thing. But, but those, they're real places. This, the Bible, it's a historical book. It's not just uh, a, a bunch of made-up stories. This is history that we're reading. These, these things actually happen in real places with real people. And some of those real places that existed in the first century, uh, like I said, they, they look different today. But 2,000 years later, some of those places still exist. And when we can look at a modern map to find where that place is that the Bible talks about over 2,000 years ago, it helps to bring some reality to a letter like 1 John and reminds us that we're, what we're reading is, is actually uh, a piece of history. It's actually something that's happened in the history of our world. And it's not just some Lord of the Rings made-up thing, right? Scholars also agree that it's the most likely uh, that the Apostle John wrote this letter in the latter part of the first century, around 85 to 90, 95 AD, placing it around the same time that he wrote uh, his gospel and his other two epistles or letters, uh, and before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which on the map is just right to the east of of, um, Ephesus there, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. So John has five uh, books Two, I guess, two books and three letters, okay, in uh, the New Testament. This would put John 
uh, around this time frame. It would make him an old man, uh, possibly the lone surviving apostle who had a firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. First uh, John wasn't written to those who had yet to hear the gospel. That's what his gospel was for. Uh, it was written to those who had heard the gospel message, not necessarily read his written version of it, but had heard the gospel message and who had submitted their lives to Christ already and had received the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking to believers here in this letter. Christianity had been around for more than a generation by this time, and so you had believers who had never seen uh, or, or met or known Jesus personally, and yet they believed because of the testimony of those who had. Um, the church was facing persecution around this time, and it continued to grow in spite of that persecution. But at the time of this letter, a number of false teachers had grown significantly as well. And, and all the false teachings seemed to center around one common theme, which was to downplay the historic person of Jesus as the unique and true Savior. And all deny the way that the salvation as being through uh, his physical death and resurrection. The purpose of this letter wasn't to correct false teachers themselves because they weren't John's primary audience. Instead, John wrote to what he calls his beloved children in the faith and, and to help them see that the claims of these false teachers were, in fact, false. Uh, and John also wanted to uh, the true believers in those churches to have assurance in their faith in Christ, to, to know that what these bogus claims were, but to also know that the claims that they have believed in are, in fact, true. So as we read this letter during this series, we're going to see this strategy that John uses uh, in, in a way that shows the false claims for what they are, while at the same time affirming his readers uh, that they are in the truth. His readers needed their confidence uh, bolstered because it had been shaken by the claims of the false teachers amidst their ranks. Um, since they hadn't seen Jesus for themselves and the false teachers, one of their claims was that they had this special relationship with God through a higher thinking. Okay? The, so the believers began to wonder then if their faith in Christ was actually uh, the right belief because they didn't have this higher thinking. So with all that context in mind, let's take a look here at the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we see, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. If you've read the Gospel of John, uh, then the opening of this letter is going to sound familiar to you. This letter starts in a similar way that John's Gospel does. The language in both passages speaks of the beginning and of the word, but the meaning in both changes somewhat in relation to the context in which John writes. In the, in the gospel, John says, in the beginning was the word. The beginning that he's referring to there is the time before the creation of the world. But here in his letter, when John says that which is, was from the beginning, he's not referring to the time before the creation of the world. Instead, this phrase is one of several that he uses here in verse 1 to refer to the word of life. 
at the end of verse 1. And in, in the gospel, the word refers to Jesus existing with God the Father prior to the foundation of the world, the eternal Jesus uh, as God. And here in John's epistle, the word of life refers to the gospel message of Jesus incarnate, the human Jesus, God made flesh, and his life and ministry here on earth. And so when John uses the phrase from the beginning here in verse 1, he's referring to the beginnings of when his readers first heard the gospel message about Jesus and his incarnation. He also uses that phrase to indicate that the message hasn't changed from when they first heard it. This is important considering that the false teachings uh, that were infiltrating the church around this time, the readers of this letter have been hearing conflicting messages about Christ. So right off the bat, the opening part of his letter, John says, listen, the message that you first heard about Christ, that he came as a man, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that is true. And that remains true, and it will always remain true. It won't change. Don't let the current culture define or redefine the word of life. All throughout this opening passage, the Apostle John repeats phrases that remind his readers that he's not only intimately acquainted with the message of Christ, but with the person of Christ as well. John walked and talked with Jesus 60 years prior to writing this letter. He saw Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons. He ate uh, meals with him. Uh, He heard Jesus teach. He embraced him. He physically touched Jesus. He stood at the foot of the cross and he watched Jesus die. He was one of the first ones uh, to look into the empty tomb and see no more Jesus' body there. He was also saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and he watched him ascend into heaven. This man has some credibility. This past July, I was listening to a radio show, and uh, it was the 4th of July, actually, I think, and, and so some patriotic stuff was on, and um, I, I listened to a firsthand account of, uh, of a man who had served on the USS Indianapolis almost 60 years ago. Um, and if you know the story about that, uh, this, this was the ship that was struck by a Japanese torpedo and it sank in 12 minutes off uh, out in the Philippian Sea on July 30th, 1945. Nearly 1,200 men on that ship, of those 1,200 men when it was struck, about 300 went down with the ship and then for four days uh, with basically no lifeboats, no food, no uh, water. In shark-infested waters, the remaining 600 men dwindled down to 319. Uh, the remaining 900 men, excuse me, dwindled down to 319. And now, almost 60 years later, I have my radio on, and I'm hearing a first-hand account from this man, uh, and he's recalling it as if he was pulled out of the water yesterday. That experience is real. That experience in his life, he knows that firsthand, and it's as vivid to him 60 years ago, or today as it was 60 years ago. For the Apostle John, the experiences that he had with Christ were as vivid and real to him now 60 years later as an old man as they were the day that they happened. He repeatedly uses words like seen and heard and touched here in these verses. He's emphasizing his authority as one who was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry And at the same time, he's discrediting the false teachers who haven't seen and heard and touched Jesus. Although they'd never seen Christ themselves, they were boasting about this special knowledge, this wrongful knowledge, 
of him. You see, the false teachers were selfishly promoting their own message in order to gain followers for themselves. But John wasn't boasting about himself, nor was he telling his readers to follow him. Instead, he was laying out his credentials as a credible witness in order to remind his readers that he was qualified to teach the truth about Jesus. And although his readers had never seen or touched or uh, heard Jesus themselves, they could be assured of the reality of Christ because they have this firsthand testimony because of John's testimony. The word testify in verse 2 comes from the Greek word that means to offer firsthand authentication in favor or affirmation of someone or something. So John had a testimony. He was offering firsthand authentication that the eternal Jesus, who was with God in the beginning, came to earth in the form of a mortal man. This has huge implications for us as we read this letter over the next 11 weeks. This is a historical document written by a real man who was a real eyewitness to the reality of God come in the flesh through his son, Jesus Christ. That means that the things that John has to say over these next five chapters hold some weight for us. If we claim to follow the true Christ, then we can't ignore the words of this firsthand witness here in this letter. We can't dismiss the tests of true Christian faith that John gives in this letter and say they don't apply. It would be like listening to that radio broadcast, hearing that guy's story and going, eh, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. I read Wikipedia. If you want more proof that John is a credible witness, read his gospel. And then read the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see if they don't match up. One of the false teachings working its way through the church when John was, uh, wrote this letter was that Jesus was God, but he never actually became a man. Most likely this was the beginnings of a belief system called uh, Gnosticism, which argued that matter was inherently evil and that spirit was inherently good. Subscribers to this belief system would tend to affirm the deity of Christ, but they would deny that he had a physical body in order to uh, preserve him from evil. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word meaning knowledge. And one of the other claims of this false teaching was that those under this belief system had special revelation from God that nobody else had. They, they basically created this exclusive club that put themselves in the position of authority uh, because they claimed to have this special knowledge of the truth that trumped everyone and everything else, including Scripture. Now listen, if anyone has the authority to say, I know Jesus better than you, wouldn't it be John? John actually had a special relationship with Jesus. He was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and James. And yet, here in this letter, he's using his authority not to exclude others in the faith, but to bring them in and include them. Listen to what he says in verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you that we have seen what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Again, we hear him reiterating what he's already said in verses 1 and 2, that he's seen and heard. He's affirming the humanity of Jesus and at the same time debunking the false teaching that Jesus never had 
an earthly body. And, when, and then he gives the reason for proclaiming what he has seen and heard. So that you may also have fellowship with us. The Greek word used for fellowship here is the word koinonia. And you may have heard of this word before. In this context, it gives the sense of having a personal relationship with the Apostle John as well as a partnership in proclaiming the word of life. John wanted to make sure that his readers continue in the fellowship that they already had with him because of their true faith in Christ. Because listen, if they remained in fellowship with him through their common belief in Jesus, they're not going to be in fellowship with the false teachers and their false belief. John goes on to say that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As believers, our fellowship it, with one another comes from our fellowship from, uh, with God the Father through his Son, Jesus. Our love for others comes from our love for God. Uh, Jesus explained this when he said that the two greatest commandments are, first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and second, to love your neighbor as yourself. At Crosspoint, we call that being devoted to Jesus and dedicated to one another We have true koinonia fellowship with one another because we have true koinonia fellowship through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father through his Holy Spirit. Finally, in verse 4, John states one of his reasons for writing this letter. He's writing it to make his joy complete. And at first glance, this might sound a little weird, like, uh, wouldn't it seem better that, to say that the goal in writing this letter is to make the reader's joy complete, to make them uh, joyful? But, but his own joy can't be complete if he knows that his readers, the, his fellow believers whom he calls dear children, if he knows that they are in danger of being led astray from the truth by the false teachings among them. In uh, his third epistle, 3 John, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking with the Lord in the truth. John writes this letter to reassure the believers that they are indeed walking in the truth and to keep them from turning away from that so that they can recognize a false teaching when it comes. And knowing that they are solid in their faith will bring him joy. So his motive is joy for himself in knowing that he has the fellowship of those believers. So, there it is. In the opening statement of this letter, John affirms not only the deity of Christ, but also the humanity of Christ. Using his own credibility as a first-hand witness to him, uh, who himself saw, heard, and touched Jesus, the Apostle John is establishing himself among his readers as one who has authority to say what he's about to say in the rest of the letter. As a loving, father-like pastor who has concern for his children, John's purpose in these opening four verses is to remind his readers of the origins of the gospel, that it was and still is a message concerning the word of life, concerning eternal life. And that the basis of this fellowship that they share with one another comes from the fellowship that they share with God the Father through a relationship with Jesus Christ, his son. So what does that mean for us here today as we are now going to be the readers of this letter? Jesus Christ is the foundation 
of true Christian faith. And Scripture tells us plainly that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Without Jesus being both, listen, we have no atonement for our sin. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, talking about us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. That means full humanity in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become human. He had to have flesh and blood so that he could suffer and die on the cross and then rise from the grave to defeat the power of sin and death. Without Jesus, we have no life. Without Jesus, we have nothing to proclaim. Without Jesus, we have no koinonia, no fellowship. Without Jesus, we have no joy. Without Jesus, the only thing that we have is cultural Christianity. The eternal Jesus, who has always existed as God, together with the Father and with the Spirit, this Jesus put on flesh and bones and entered into humanity He lived a perfect life here on earth and he suffered and he died on the cross as a penalty for our wickedness and imperfection. Three days later, he rose from the grave proving that he's God and showing his power over sin and death. The perfection that God demanded from us was met in the life of Jesus Christ. The penalty that God demanded for our sin was met in the death of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life with God was made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for all who believe in him. These are the fundamental beliefs of the message concerning the word of life. It's the same message that we've heard from the beginning, and it will continue to be proclaimed until Jesus returns. So the question is, do you believe that? Is your faith a cultural faith? Or is it a biblical faith? Without Christ, there is no Christianity. And so we have to get to realism. We have to get to that place at some point in our life where we say, do I believe this? Yes or no? Not maybe. We're going to end our time this morning by taking communion together. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word koinonia to describe what participating in communion means. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation or koinonia in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation or koinonia in the body of Christ? In essence, by taking communion, you're claiming fellowship with Christ through a participation or a partnership in the proclamation of his sacrifice on the cross. You're claiming a personal relationship to him, with him. By eating the bread and drinking the cup, you're saying, I believe 100% that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sins. You're claiming complete and total allegiance to Christ alone. So I need you to hear this for a minute. 
if your allegiance is not to Christ alone, then out of respect for God and his word, I'm going to ask you not to take a cup of juice and a piece of bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, Paul bluntly says this, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Demons delight in, demons delight in the worship of anything but God. Demons delight in the worship of anything else but God. And God claims absolute exclusivity when it comes to worship. It is to be reserved for him and him alone. So if your allegiance is not to God alone through Christ, then your worship won't be for God alone. If you take communion and your allegiance is to things other than Christ, then you're proclaiming that God is Lord uh, outwardly, but you're denying it inwardly. In essence, you're attempting to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. And Paul says that you can't have a seat at both of those tables. You have to choose one or the other. If you don't profess Christ inwardly, then it doesn't make sense to profess him outwardly. To come to the Lord's table without first coming to the Lord himself not only dishonors the ceremony, but it dishonors his body and blood and mocks the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And this is why that you shouldn't take communion if you're not a believer. But before we take communion, let me just say that you don't have to remain an unbeliever this morning. God's forgiveness is available to you. Jesus made that possible. You can trust the gospel message that started with eyewitnesses 2,000 years ago and and has been faithfully passed on through generation after generation after generation without wavering in the truth. You can enter into a koinonia fellowship with God through belief in his son Jesus as the only full and final sacrifice for your sins. You can claim complete and total allegiance to Christ alone. And if you can express that inwardly this morning, then I invite you to join with us and express that outwardly through communion. I'm going to invite the ushers to uh, pass the trays now. And, and the, cup of, the cup of juice is sitting inside the cup with the bread in it. So make sure that you take both as the tray goes by. Take a few moments and talk to God this morning on your own and thank him for his son who came and put on flesh and sacrificed for you. And then after everyone has had a few moments to reflect, I'll lead us together in taking uh, communion as a body of believers. Maybe the tray came by this morning and, uh, and you took the bread and the cup, but deep down you, don't, you know that you don't have a commitment to Jesus Christ. You haven't committed your life to him. I'm going to ask that you would just simply hold the cups and refrain from taking the elements out of respect for what they represent. No one's going to look down at you and and judge you because you're not drinking it and eating it uh, when we are. And if they do, you come talk to me. I want... If that's you and you refrain, can I just thank you for your honesty? Can I thank you that, um, that you're willing to take an honest look at your life and realize that um, you have more to go with Jesus? 
and thank you for your willingness to abstain from participating in this. Um, if you'd like to talk more about what it means to have a true relationship with Jesus Christ, then I, I invite you to come talk to me after the service or Pastor Dave or one of our elders or a member of the prayer response team or anyone in here who loves Jesus and serves him wholeheartedly. Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Jesus, we thank you that you indeed came and became like us in every way. You were tempted in every way, and yet you did not sin. You lived a perfect life that we could never live. You died a death that satisfied the requirements of the penalty of our sin, something that we could never do. And you rose from the dead three days later so that we can rise from the dead and live forever in your presence. God, I pray for those in here this morning that would listen to the podcast later. That as we go through this series, that they would, that all of us, honestly, God, would take an a, a honest look at our faith. And that we would come away encouraged or that we would see the holes. That we would see uh, what our faith truly is. And I pray whether or not we see it as, uh, as something that's biblical and true and, and uh, full of the Holy Spirit or we see it as something that's cultural and false and full of emptiness. I pray that whatever conclusion we come to, God, that, that in the midst of that, you would draw us to you. For those that, that don't know you yet, God, I pray that they would know you through this series. I pray that they would uh, surrender to a saving faith that's only found in you, that they would surrender their lives to you as Lord, that they would trust fully in the claims that have been made about you from eyewitnesses and from your own self, as we'll see. We don't even have to take man's testimony. We have God's testimony that he sent his son. Jesus, we love you. We thank you and we pray that you would receive all the glory and honor and praise in your name. Amen. Uh, yeah, look at you. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, 
opportunity to fellowship and kind of put into practice uh, a little bit of what First John is going to talk about throughout this series. So we are going to do a little bit of both inside and outside. Food's going to be inside. Some tables are going to be back there in the family room. And then if you're welcome to set up lawn chairs and whatever you brought in between, kind of between the shed and the building, the fire pit's going. And uh, just encourage you, whether you brought food or not, to stick around and to uh, sit around together, share a meal together, and share some relationship and fellowship together. So thanks for pitching in. Thanks for sticking around. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless.